0: Actually, I thought you'd appreciate this. So this is the closet that I'm I'm only in here when I record, um, which is not as much as I'd like. And so this is like my fancy dress closet, which of course it. I haven't worn anything since COVID. Um But I've got my wedding dress in oh, here. <laughs> that's
1: so perfect. It's also a beautiful like background to talk to you in front of all of yeah. your clothes.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> so <laughs> what's in your closet?
1: I'm Avery Truffelman. I'm a podcaster and the creator of Articles of Interest, a show about what we wear.
0: So you you've been doing a lot of interviews lately, right? Uh like being
1: interviewed? Yeah, more so than I normally do. I mean, you know, normally I'm the one
0: wielding the microphone, but right. yeah. I I know that you and I are both uh, getting over some illness of our own so, <laughs> so <we'd be> like <laughs> snorting into the microphone. <laughs> so your sonorous Avery Truffleman voice is even lower and mine is at Avery Register. <laughs> um, but I just I feel like when I listen to your show, Articles of Interest, a show about fashion and plumbing the depths of fashion, and I think about how you and I I think are both really interested in stuff. <laughs> yes. Like things in that are things? expressly
1: visual that people are like yeah. you can't make that a radio show
0: and we're like but what if you did? <laughs> Hold my beer. Yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean and and that's what's so funny is that that is always the first question I get whenever I'm interviewed by anybody. Yeah. It's like basically and it's uh, you know I think everyone thinks they're being clever yeah. but it's like The idea that you can, uh, first of all, that you can just take a thing and find a way to kind of make it sing in the, uh, you know, audio medium. But it's never just about the thing. Yeah. Obviously. And I feel like you talk about that so well. How did you discover this world of things? Where is your starting point? Well, I mean, I will say I think a fun thing
1: about what we both do and in ser- in working in these very visual forms in, in making non-visual work about visual things is you sort of take taste out, right? Mm. Like if people don't like the painting, whether or not someone actually likes the painting or they like the garment, it doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. that's really important because things like fashion and art can both be so alienating if you see something and you're like, I don't like it or I don't mm-hmm. get it. You know what I mean? And it's really nice to almost say that it's irrelevant and, like, we're just going to tell the story and the meaning and the context behind it, and you don't have to get caught up with whether or not you like it or, like, Mm -hmm. get it. And I always find that no matter what I first think, as soon as I learn the story and the context and the background, then I do like it and and, (laughs) and enjoy it and appreciate it. So it's kind of nice. It's sort of taking... uh, it's like blind dating these 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 things. so I, I think that's that's another way that we're both similar. But I got into the world of object. well, I mean, i've always I've always liked, you know, the stuff. I think I always before I worked in radio, I mean, this makes it sound like I've had a a long career. I'm saying when I was a child, I wanted to I thought about being a designer. And I thought, because mm-hmm. actually, because my my dad took me to an exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt that was about um, like clever designs that help people. You know, it was basically like the mm-hmm. Life Straw was one. You know, a straw that's also a water filter. I was like, oh, that's so brilliant! You know, you by like changing the products we use, we can change people's lives. And I got really into reading about design. And the ways that that could help people. So it was something that I was always like interested in. And then I worked, I spent most of my career, I worked for the show 99% Invisible for seven years. And it's obviously, mm-hmm. it's all about architecture and design. It's all about stuff and it's all about objects. And mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to work in radio so badly that I could have really tried to do stories about anything. I remember I was like applying to... Freakonomics, and I was like, oh, I can do, like, economic stories, or I'll do uh, business stories, I'll do anything. I was, like, trying to think of ways that I could make radio stories. I was, like, trying to do the news. But really, I think there's a reason I ended up at 99% Invisible, and it's because, like, yeah, it ended up being the intersection of storytelling and and, and design, and that's really where I cut my teeth. I mean, everything I learned, I learned from Roman Mars,
0: really. I mean, I I had that same impulse, too. You know, when I started... When I discovered radio, I just wanted to tell stories about anything. And that's what I realized, actually, that art history had always been, you know, like if I was like what made art history interesting to me was the the storytelling nature of it. You know, that's why I love teaching it. And that's why I loved memorizing little anecdotes that I would then put on slide exams. And, you know, it's like, how do you take this thing and make it? really, really accessible. And that accessibility comes from relatability. And I think what you said about that people don't like it or they don't get it, I think there's like a one to the next there. Because first, at least with art, I don't know if you would say the same thing about fashion because it's both intimidating, but also you kind of need it in your life. So maybe it's a little bit more utilitarian, except... I don't know. But like the idea that that if you don't get it, you know, first you have to decide whether or not you get it, then you can decide whether or not you like it.
1: Well, it's tricky, right? Because so it's very difficult for fashion to reckon with complexity hmm. in most contexts because by and large it is a commercial art, you know? Most of mm-hmm. the time fashion is supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to make us feel good. We're supposed to want it and want to buy it. And it is possible for fashion to be art. Lord knows there are so many examples of the ways that fashion uh-huh. is art, but by and large, that's on a runway or in a museum or, you know, some other context where it's more or less severed from the from the commercial space or from <laughs> reality. So it can be both. Like, there is, there is such a thing as fashion that's complicated or weird or makes you think or makes you, you know, feel bad, but you're not going <laughs> to find it at Forever 21 or whatever yeah.
0: sheen. Well, the more artistic fashion is, though, the less people feel like they get it. Exactly, exactly, like, exactly. I I used to love watching Project Runway. I mean, that was a staple in the aughts. And then uh, I don't know if you saw on Netflix. I don't know if it was renewed, but there was this season. It was hosted by Tan from uh, oh. Queer Eye. And it was supposed to be like, it was like Project Runway, uh, like, amplified. It was meant to be, you know really avant garde fashion. Oh wow. And I would watch it and I'd be like, at least with Project Runway, I kind of knew what was good and what was shit and like here the winner would be something that I was like, that doesn't make any sense to me and it was like, okay, this this show is like one level beyond what I think I take pleasure (laughs) in watching because I can't bring any of my own opinion to it. Totally, totally, totally. And that's the
1: that's the thing. It's really it's really, really tricky, especially because fashion is so as you said, so much of it is like, oh, do I understand it? Fashion's super semiotic. You know, I'm wearing like a striped shirt right now. Mm-hmm. And you know what that references? is. You know, it's like mm-hmm. sailor. France. France. <laughs> you know, you, you have this like little neural network of things that you see when you're like, okay, striped shirt. Like these are the things it means. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And the interesting thing is the meaning of the shirt changes depending on what i pair it with like you can't see my pants right now but you know are they black pants are they military pants are they white pants like these all sort of add something to your neural network of associations that you have with with a look mm-hmm. so it's so it's interesting the outfits can be legible and reference worlds And they can also be like if there's something really, really new, something genuinely actually new, it's going to be like a made up nonsense word that doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense. And Mm -hmm. so in order for how do I put this in order for it to be understandable, it has to be referential, like it has to reference shit you already know, which may which means it's not novel. You know what I mean? So in fashion, novelty and legibility are actually at odds. It's Mm -hmm. very I mean, but that's very similar to the art world in in a strange way. And then the art world does have that commercial, you know, the idea that what's going to be on a gallery is going to be different than, like, what's in your living room. Like, that same tension Mm -hmm. really exists in the art world, no?
0: Well, I think that there's a desire for the art world to keep making, you know, what ends up being sellable is something that is both new And references, like you say, you know, reference is something that people can put their finger on. But if you do that, it's a very, very delicate, like dangerous balance. Because if you go one step too referential, it becomes derivative. And I think that, you know, I'm actually not that up on the gallery world. Because by the time it comes, you know, by the time it hits my desk, it has, like it's in the canon. Right. And I don't necessarily see my job as deciding what is worth putting in the canon. I think for me and for, you know, kind of where my interests are, I'd rather take what's already there and help people understand why it matters. Um, Same, same, same. And that's, you know, it's interesting, like, the way that that storytelling happens. I actually, I was thinking about, I've been binging your show lately, and the... Uh, the credit music or the music right before your credits in in most of your episodes is uh, Sasami, right? Yeah. Singing, there's a portrait painted on the things we love. Yeah. And I hear that, and I'll tell you, like my mind goes into kind of an interesting place of what that means to me. But first and foremost, what does that mean to you? Did you write that? No, no,
1: Sasami wrote
0: that. I mean, Sasami wrote that, but I definitely like...
1: I mean, it's it's funny because I think, you know, I understand the capitalist critique of not only fashion, but just all consumerism, you know, that, that uh, it's like classic Marxism, right? Like the pleasure that we used to have in creation has now been subsumed in consumption. And now, you know, we assume mm. that if you buy this shirt you'll be the character who wears the shirt if you buy this lamp it's going to transform your living room that all like goods have this transformative sort of magical quality about them that is in some degree to some degree lent to them by consumerism and advertising but i think the whole premise of articles of interest is to like hold that critique and be aware of it and also understand that like i think there is something to the magical thinking of clothing and consumption mm. and that's what i like about that lyric that it it is you know, there is a portrait painted on the things we love. These things are sending messages. I love that line because I think it embraces I, I like that it's sort of an earnest assessment of mm-hmm. of fashion and it's so easy to come down with the critique about how like stupid and frivolous and wasteful fashion is. Like, yes, obviously, and we talk about that. But at the end of the day it's like it's a beautiful thing. I don't know, what does it mean to you?
0: Well, okay, so first of all you've just hit on like exactly what I want to talk about oh excellent um but uh I'll tell you what it means to me so you know I'm always coming at everything (laughs) like it or not from like a filter of fine art of course and portraiture in art is a really complicated thing it seems simple but it's not because it's how people look it's how they want to look it's how they want to be perceived it's how they want to be remembered yeah um and you like it is tied into fashion yes. that way. It's it's people's external face. Yes. Um, but a portrait too can say so much about the artist because the artist is usually you know the subject is usually the artist's um, interpretation of that person, especially as you get into the more modern period. Yeah. And um, but you are are kind of the artist here, right? You are the podcaster. Oh. You're the storyteller. Oh, and you're looking at your subject. And and I was curious kind of how much of, of your series, specifically on Ivy, because you had your own transformation from the beginning yeah. to the end, Um, you know, how much of your storytelling reflects how you feel about it and what draws you to these stories in the first place?
1: Well, I find it's funny. Uh, someone recently asked me, like, oh... It's just so cool how you love all these things. And I find, you know, that you love uh, clothes and fashion and perfume and whatever. And I really think the most interesting stories come from not liking things or not understanding things. Mm -hmm. You know, I started a story on perfume because I didn't understand perfume. I started Mm -hmm. the story on preppy clothes almost because... It was, like, too good to not do once I started doing research, but I was initially interested in it because I was like, I hate preppy clothes. Yeah. And I, I love to read—it's funny, like, I'm trying to get my boyfriend to do a story with me, and he basically wants to do it about something he really likes. And I'm like, what if you weave in this other thing that you really hate? And he was like, no, I don't want to do that. I was like, no, you don't understand. Like, that's what's going to make it good. Like, if you, mm-hmm. especially when it comes, and I'm sure you feel the same way with art, when it comes to, like, aesthetic phenomena. Absolutely. You have your tastes. And once you start interrogating them and questioning them, I think it leads to a richer story. And that's also how you come through by, like, showing mm-hmm. your hand a little bit. And that's what makes it not, you know, NPR. It'd be like, I have opinions. My yeah. mind has changed. This is how I feel about this, especially because, you know, if you're describing visuals in a non-visual medium, the only thing you can do is really talk about how it makes you feel and whether or not Mm -hmm. you you like it or understand Mm it. So I think to kind of try to, you know, feed two birds with one scone, as Pito wants you to say, I feel. (laughs) Do you remember
0: that? I've never heard that before.
1: (laughs) That's wonderful. Uh, To feed two birds with one scone here. I do think that. Yeah. Having an opinion and trying to tackle things that I don't necessarily like mm-hmm. or I am confused by is also how I insert myself
0: into the yeah. thing. Yeah, I, I love the process of convincing myself, yes. actually, that I really love an artwork. Yes, um, yes, yes. Because I never... I. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before. I always fall in love with every yes. object that I do an episode on. Yes, it's you impossible know, even not Gauguin. to. Like yeah. even even an artist who I'm going into it and, and I have just no, you know, either I actively dislike the artist or I just don't really care. And it's like when you really dive in and you make yourself, you make yourself care, you find the story. And... So, so that's what I love about this idea of a portrait painted on the things we love. Yeah. You know, even if you hate it, like it, it sets the tone for your show, even though it comes at the end. Yeah. Like it sets the tone that it's like, this is about giving anything a try. Yes. And seeing if, you know, if you just do enough digging into it, maybe you'll like it. And I think that, that with art, definitely as an art history student, you know, just by hearing the story of something you you can make a, a five-year-old run up to a painting and say, okay, I can tell you this and that because I recognize it and because it's familiar. And it's like, they will love it and they yeah. don't even know they do. And that's
1: like the beautiful exercises. It expands your notion of taste and mm-hmm. expands your notion of beauty. And I feel like, especially in fashion, when there's so much emphasis on like, be yourself, get clothes that, you know, reflect you. If you question your taste and you question what you like, you're questioning who you are. You know, you're like expanding Mm. the boundaries of what you think is an expression of yourself. And that's Mm -hmm. like, I mean,
0: in some degree, silly. And in other ways, it's huge. It's like very profound. Well, so, okay, hang on to that. Well, let me come back to that in a minute this idea of like silly, silly v. profound. Um, But first of all, like, how do you know when you have? Maybe there's not an answer to this, but maybe there is. How do you know, Avery Truffleman, when you have really hit the story on the head and you know why you fell in love with it and you know that you've been able to convey why other people, like why they should be in love with it too? Do you ever have like an aha moment with your storytelling?
1: Um, I really go from the gut, like most mm. of the time. Like recently I was I was in Hungary and I was in a museum and they just had these dresses by this guy. And I was just like, what's up with this guy? Like, what are these dresses? And I just knew, like in my gut, I was like, this is, something's up with this.
0: You know what I mean? Because it, it just resonated with you. Like you couldn't stop or like you didn't like it.
1: I don't know. It's just like, something's up with this. Uh-huh. I have too many
0: questions. Like I have to figure this mm-hmm. out. Like what's, mm-hmm. what is
1: up with this? And there are a lot of uh, designers where I like you know see their work, and I don't have the I'm not like I must know. I there are a lot of designers where I don't have those questions, so I don't know. I really, I really feel like I'm I have to set sail first. I just start like right now. I'm trying to work on more stories, so I'm I'm just talking to people I'm just going around and I'm doing interviews and I'm just flailing around in the dark and I'm like some dots will connect and I'll figure it out I mean I started making season three not knowing exactly what I was doing and then it slowly dawned on me it's like oh my god it's all about preppy clothes but I just feel like it it comes together because it has to because it's like how I eat and pay my rent you know I don't (laughs) want to fantasize that it's like Some magical process that, like, takes whatever time it takes. Like, it happens on a deadline because it has to happen. But um, it's a very intuitive feeling, and it comes in, like, a series of epiphanies, you know? I'm always like, oh, I've got it. No, I've got it. Oh, my God, no, I've got it. And Mm then I I know that's probably Mm -hmm. not very helpful, but it's funny. It feels like I've got it multiple times, and then I always change it.
0: Yeah, everybody's process is, I think, really unique that way and really hard to... Explain, so I, I apologize for the question in the first place. I mean, but, do you get epiphany but, moments? But, well, I definitely, it's always in writing the intro to every script I write for a Lonely Palette episode because I have to completely divorce myself from everything that I know about the art historical um, explanation of the painting. You know, it's like I look at a painting and it's like, okay, what does this kind of arouse in me? And what is something really specific that you then turn into something really universal because yeah. that's, you know, good storytelling. And so I have a lot of fun, but but there is that kind of... Like, it's fun to probe all of these different, you know, like, you know, pull all these little threads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fashion terms. But also, I wish that it wasn't dependent on a moment of alchemy, but it always is. Yeah. You know, and it's... I think that being a professional at this means that that courting that muse happens a little faster because yeah. you know you can do it. Like, you know you've done it before and the white page doesn't have to be as terrifying. But, but you still need it to course through you. You know, you still have to, like, hope that there's a moment that it all comes together. That, it's so funny. That's the metaphor I use, actually, summoning the muse because mm.
1: um, when... I, I was, like, a Latin nerd at my prep school. I, was like, really did, like, the full-on secret history thing. I was, like, really into I studied, like, ancient Greek and Latin. Oh, I love that book. And, yeah. yeah, totally. And when I read it, I was like, I feel so seen. This is, like, totally how it felt in, like, my little, like, ancient Greek class. Uh, except, like, with the without the murder, obviously, and the incest, obviously. But, you know, this, like... Obviously. But there's like, close-knit group of people who's like, we're, like, studying this ancient thing. And um, I always loved the Aeneid as an epic way more than the odyssey because odysseus knows where he's going he's trying to go home and aeneas has no idea where he's going he's just setting out he's just fleeing troy and there are so many places in his journey where he could land you know at one point he ends up in carthage and he has this affair with dido and she's like stay 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 you can be the king here and he's like ah it doesn't feel right it doesn't feel right and he just goes back out into the unknown. You know, he's just and he has no idea that he's about to found Rome. You know, he he's about to be huge and he's just shooting in the dark. And I also love it on another level, because when Virgil is writing the Aeneid, he begins it with Musamihi causas Memoram, which means like the muse who causes me to remember. And he's like, summon it. He's like, come on, muse. Come on. Come on. Like, give me the story. Give me the whole story and i love both parts of it i love the the active summoning of the muse you know this like efficient thing, you know virgil needs to get this shit done and the 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 element of wandering the idea that mm-hmm. you know aeneas is is setting off into the unknown to where he does not know and i think both elements are really crucial in my work the active summoning and the unknowing mm-hmm. um it sounds yeah. like it's your it's you you relate.
0: Oh yeah, you know I I don't know what a script is gonna be when I sit down and start it. I don't want to say write it as if I write it all in one sitting. Right, room, right, right, I right. Wish I could, but definitely do not. Um, I find the wandering part. It's a you know it depends what what. It depends what sleep I've had the night before. You know, either it's either I I count my blessings that this is what I get to do professionally or it's the most terrifying thing in the world. And if it's not kind of laying, you know, if it's not revealing itself, not only do I question that script, I question my entire life. Uh, Totally,
1: totally, totally, totally. Totally, uh, <laughs> totally, totally. Especially when it's tied up. I don't know. I remember feeling this way, especially at, like, 99PI when I, like, got a paycheck from a boss to, like, make mm-hmm. stuff. I remember when I, like, couldn't write. I was like, well, I don't deserve to eat. You know, like, I don't deserve my money. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't deserve... Oh, my God. I'm not doing yeah. the thing that I'm supposed to be doing to, like, live. So, it, it's yeah. yeah, when it's tied up with your actual livelihood, it gets very weirdly personal.
0: Yeah, personal. Um, You, you reminded me. Uh, I had a really lovely uh, conversation with uh, Sebastian Smee, who's the art critic for the Washington Post. I asked him, you know, how can you be, you know, a little moony-eyed, you know, how can you be an expert on everything you talk about? And he said, that's what deadlines are for. You know, I'm an expert on anything to the deadline. And then it's, you move on to the next thing. And that was such a relief, actually, to know that to be a critic and to be, you know, a quote unquote expert means that you are just focusing on what you're focusing on for this article, for this deadline. And, and because that is very much what I do for my own script. You know, I didn't, I actually just, I released an episode on Caravaggio. I didn't know anything about him before that. Right. And suddenly I'm, you know, I'm, I'm (laughs) presenting myself as an expert when it's like, no, I just, I spent three really concentrated weeks on his life and now I've moved on. Yeah, totally. So let me ask uh, this wandering. Let's put a pin on this, actually, because I think that this ties into our, our moment in a really important way. But before we get to that, um, this idea of fashion is silly, yeah. fashion is profound. I get this question all the time. Why care about art? Why should I care about art? And, and I think that even has, um, you know, like I think that that uh you can answer that with a little bit more like highfalutin, you know, well, sure. you know, than than necessarily fashion. But this is like a demoralizing question to get, you know, why should i care about art? Why should i care about fashion? Um i get why people ask it. You know, this is a painting on a wall. It's you know, it's way overvalued when you think about people who are really suffering yeah you know and and you can't go too close to it or something starts to ring and you can't understand it unless you've taken a course so like why should i care but i was thinking about a line from your episode on pockets in early early aoi um and this isn't about pockets per se, but about fashion itself. Actually, it doesn't apply to pockets at all. Um, But the line is, just because something is useless, it doesn't make it meaningless. And, you know, art may be demonstrably useless, but it's not meaningless, you know, obviously. So why should we care about fashion from your vantage point? Oh my god! Well, everything you said about art totally
1: applies to fashion as well. I mean, in as much as there is, it is worth examining the byproducts of humanity in all ways. You know, I like worked on a design show for seven years. I, like we examined buildings and parking lots and 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 you know all this minutia in the world that was always weirdly extremely telling about you know, why these things were made and what needs they were, they were meant to fill. But I feel like with fashion, I mean, the thing that I love the most about fashion is that it is a weirdly, I mean, my show is a history show, more or less. It's funny because sometimes people are like, oh my God, what should I wear? I'm like, I don't know. I don't (laughs) like, I don't go to like fashion shows. I, I can't help you. I don't do that. But if we talk about the history of fashion, you know, it's like weirdly everyone had to wear clothes it doesn't Mm -hmm. you can look at the clothes that enslaved people wore and understand Mm -hmm. parts of their story Mm -hmm. you know people who are precluded from writing utensils or the knowledge for how to read or write or paint you can see literally i mean one of the things the place that i always joke it's like kidding not kidding that I want to see before I die, and I think I might be able to go next year, is the Bada Shoe Museum in Toronto. I like oh, want to go more than You could anything. go there
0: today. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but like, I want to like, go. I, I've been, it's been such a long ramp up. I want to like go and do like five stories there. You know, I, I'm like obsessed with the Bada Shoe Museum.
0: But I lived right down the street from there, actually. I am so jealous. It just seems like the coolest place. But that's the thing. Yeah.
1: You can see the shoes and the stories of like children, women. What records do we have of such a vast swath of humanity that's really, Mm -hmm. really, 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 really telling about Mm -hmm. the ways people lived? You can tell so much, you know, if a garment doesn't have pockets, it means that there was no right to like possession and interiority, you know, Mm -hmm. like you can tell... Were the shoes uncomfortable? Did they not wear shoes? Were the, were the materials coarse? You can tell so much about the ways people tried to express themselves and the tools they were given from their wardrobes. And it's like an amazing, amazing populist lens yeah. to look at history and to feel like you're a part of it. But this is also something that you have to do every day. You have to put clothes on. You, you have to. And even if it does mean, you know, whatever, putting on a collared shirt over your sh- your boxer shorts to get on a Zoom meeting, that's a, that's a moment. That's like a sartorial statement that is in the zeitgeist and you're saying something about the way you live when you do that. Yeah. It's so fun to look at and feel yourself. I mean, this is part of what I'm getting at in the first episode of this season of Articles of Interest, talking about trends. Trends can be perverted by capitalism and they can be wasteful and awful but i think there is also something about feeling of your time and feeling as though you are dressing with your moment and with your needs and with your place in history that feels like really interesting
0: it's really Mm -hmm. interesting so yeah i i love it i love it i love it yeah anybody can hear that you love it And I think that that's I think that's why your show is so successful, besides also being very intelligent about the historical aspect of it and the context. Um, And, you know, that's the part that always really appeals to me. I'm you know, I I, too, am am sitting in the equivalent of, you know, my boxer shorts right now. Totally. In my closet. Totally. Um, But uh, I think that when people actually think about art in the same way as as being of its moment and and of its zeitgeist you know everybody museums are you know very necessary for the preservation of these objects getting better at the education of these objects but they really they absolutely subvert the way that they sit in their historical moment because you're walking from one room to another and you don't feel you know you should feel your hair blow back you should feel the time pass as you go from one to the next but you don't beautifully
1: put yeah
0: And so I think that, you know, in that way, museums, unfortunately, kind of do a necessary disservice when it comes to understanding the way that the objects were in their own context. Because what you said about byproducts of our time, that's exactly how I describe artworks. And I I don't mean to be in any way like dismissive, like a byproduct, you know, but it is You know, these are the objects of life lived and people living in their own moment and responding to their own moment with real authenticity. These are the objects that we care about because we know they're authentic. That's how we know they're good. And so if you do take clothes maybe out of the fashion industry, although that itself is a different piece of it, but like, you know, people feel as scared of the fashion industry as I think they do of of a museum space totally you know, that They're that they're left out of something um and so i think that separating the art from the intimidation factor of a museum will actually help you understand the, these objects I, it, it just makes them much more relatable and yes. much more accessible um but then as you were talking about it i was i was picturing um you know meryl streep uh, going off on Anne Hathaway and her her stupid sweater and like holding the classic the belt.
1: cerulean blue line. Yeah. yeah,
0: do you like that scene? Yeah, because I think that that actually helps a lot of people understand the fashion world.
1: Totally, totally, totally. I mean, I think it's more complicated now than that movie lets on. I don't think trends are necessarily like dictated by designers and just trickle down to everyone. I think mm-hmm. there are like a lot of different swirling influences. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, so in a weird way, it's very simplistic, but it is one way and it's very accurate in in one way. Yeah. Yeah. When
0: you record your episodes, I love that you put at the end that you perform them. And I'd love to hear your your take on the difference between normal podcast recording and what it actually means to like perform. Like, what do you keep an eye on? Oh, I don't know. I mean, well, here's another thing. I was re- I'm
1: really um, lucky in that I think you know I I worked for this big podcast, ninety nine percent invisible, for so long, and when we started, we were so scrappy. I mean, we had agreed <laughs> to do put something out every week, and we were like three people. You know, I was the intern and so they were functionally like go 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 like make stories like just do whatever you have to do so I was given this incredibly long leash that most interns do not get (laughs) and I know that at a lot of shows they try to like coach you and tell you how to perform and what your voice should sound like and I never had that they always just like put me in a closet and they're like okay you know read the thing you wrote so I had to sort of <laughs> figure it out myself. So that's all just a way of saying that, like, I don't know the different. I can't say there's like a difference between normal podcast recording and performing. But mm-hmm. I do know that it always, to me, feels like a performance because it always feels durational and it always feels mm-hmm. kind of exhausting. <laughs> um, and yeah, and it's not just a reading. Like, I'm also sort of like walking you through I think that's also the the part, and I'm sure you feel this way, too, about being not only the host, but the producer and the writer Mm -hmm. and the researcher. I feel like all of that is it's so much more than the reading. It's not that I'm just reading you something I wrote. It's like I went on this whole journey and now I'm going to like present it to you, what I what I found. It's almost more like a like a like a sales
0: pitch or something.
1: You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and I, and yet I completely understand, and I, I just like that you draw attention to it, oh, because thanks. most people would just say, "You know, this is produced by, by me, you know, hosted by me." Yeah. And I think that you're you're drawing attention to the fact that you've written your script to be read out loud. You're feeling all of these um, insights. That you're sharing kind of as you're having them, and you're really inviting somebody to come in. And I've never really understood how anybody could be like a good podcast host who never did some theater. Uh, (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. You know, and who just wasn't. Yeah, like who wasn't the kind of person who, in English class, when you could, you know, pick parts and read it out loud, like you had your hand, you know, like practically like off your body. I feel so ashamed. This is so embarrassing. Yes, totally. No, exactly. I was, I was the exact same way. Where, where you feel like you, you know, I think this takes practice. I think it's something that people just might be inclined to do because they enjoy it. But it's like, as you're reading, you're feeling it. You know, I do that even when I read my kids' books, you know, where it's just like every character has a different feel and you're really kind of bringing it to life with with your whole self. And I think that that really changes the listener experience. Although I have to say, I don't know about you, but I procrastinate
1: so much when it comes time to record. (laughs) I'll spend all day... (laughs) not recording I mean so often I'll like clear my schedule because I'll be like I have to record and I'll waste the whole day and then I'll like do it at midnight you I just I mean I think it's because it feels like it's a lot and then I have to like bring Mm -hmm. my whole self to it and I have to like be in the right mood for it I never want to do it I'm like always dragging my feet I find I find it's really difficult for me I don't know do you feel similarly
0: I, I do. And I think it's because you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours putting together a very thorough, very insightful word document. You know, yeah, exactly. That, and and the voice is the only part that anybody like f- sees, yeah. for lack of a better word. You know, it's like it all has to be this whole picture has to be poured into this tiny shot glass of like this is where the voice is and every word has to land. And that can be, yeah, that's stressful. I, I try to, like, yeah, I procrastinate when it comes to recording also.
1: I don't know. I don't know where that I guess I have to, like, work it out in therapy why I'm, like, so scared of tracking. But I, I really <laughs> hate it. It's, like, definitely my least favorite part.
0: Well, when did you realize, too, and, and you must know this, that you have a really beautiful voice? Thank you. Well, okay, I know I um had not
1: a very pretty voice for most, well, not most of my life. I'm older now. But when I was a when I was a kid, I had like inflamed adenoids, so I always like I sounded like <laughs> like this. And then mm-hmm. basically I got them taken out and was just like, whoa, what's that? Like and this like gorgeous sexy voice spelling. Kind of. It was it was it was it was cool. I mean, I always had a deep voice, but it was like a deep mm-hmm. nasally voice. And mm-hmm. yeah, I had this and I and I and because they were blocking my nasal passageway, I was like breathing through my mouth like really, really dorky <laughs> and um, definition of mouth breather. And so, yeah. And then I remember I could like sing and stuff. I was like, whoa, it was cool. I like, couldn't do any of this stuff before. So I think there's something about taking something that I'm still learning how to do, learning to sort of dispassionately view yourself like, okay, this is my voice. This is my tool. You know, this is what I make instead of being mired in like fear and shame and like, what will people think? And like, no, it's not ready yet. Or like, oh, my voice isn't right. And there's something I think about understanding how you sound and, and, and making it be, be personal. Yes. And heartfelt, but also just like
0: doing it, you know, just doing it. Yeah, I, I, I wonder, too, because, you know, you've had some real well-earned, beautiful success with your show. And, and that can be a real stressor, right? Like, when you put something out there, that can, you know, I mean, the more people it hits, does that... Has that changed at all kind of the trajectory of the way that you produce or like knowing that there's a big audience out there or are you just like, hey, they're here for it. They know what they signed up for. And in that way, I would say that you're you're quite down the road (laughs) in like accepting what you put out.
1: No, I think I always have this like inferiority complex, especially because I've moved around a lot recently Like Mm -hmm. also 99% Invisible is like a massive audience, you know, because that show has been going on for 10 years. It's like a if you come out consistently every week for a decade, Mm -hmm. you're going to earn like a big loyal audience. And so Mm -hmm. since leaving that nest, I've found myself, you know, comparatively, obviously smaller and sort of on my own. And I did some projects with New York magazine and now I'm starting articles of interest more or less from scratch. So it does it it all just feels it feels like I've been moving from like rental to rental and now I finally <laughs> have like a a place of my own and I'm just trying to build it up and make it something robust. There are lots of different metrics of success. Yeah. And I think they're all like blessings and I'm totally grateful and I don't know I still very much feel like I'm trying to um, establish myself in a way that I uh, haven't felt for a few years now you know what I mean
0: oh absolutely we have a a hub and spoke you know my my podcast collective Um, we have a slack channel and and you know it's for New releases and show promos and everything, but we have just another thread for just kind of like, you know, just kind of dumping our emotional angst of the day. And one of the producers recently posted, you know, when I'm actually in the middle of a story, is there no better feeling? Right. You know, it's like when I actually realize that I love all of this stuff and I'm not constantly just looking for sponsorship and trying to grow my audience and... You know, trying to evade audience capture, you know, like only doing what I think my audience is going to want. Totally. And, and I wrote back and I said, you know, I need to go to a museum by myself and hopefully be the only one in the gallery and just sit in kind of the quiet and feel that electric crackle. Yes. And it's like, that's when you remember why you do this in the first place. Yes. Yes. And you don't get that on Twitter. No. <laughs> you know, you don't no. get that when you're constantly feeling like as podcasting has changed so much in the last number of years, like so much, like it's a different it's just a different thing than it was when I started, certainly when you started. yeah. Um, and I just feel like my... M- I'm trying not to feel invisible Yeah. every day. I feel like I fade a little bit more like in um like in a, you know, the back to the future, like the photo that Marty has yeah, yeah, of, of yeah. his uh, siblings. It, it feels like that is what it is to be a podcaster who's not continually pushing out content. Yeah. And that's not the kind of content
1: that we make. No, it's not. Well, and it's also, it's funny because when you, the thing I compare it to all the time is radio. You know, I I wanted to get into radio. And radio is sort of this ephemeral thing that, pour, you know, through, through incredible uh, waves pulsating through the air, spills into your kitchen or your car and is just sort of there with you. And it wasn't about knowing who the host was or, you know, choosing it. It just kind of came to you. And with podcasting, I mean, it's so funny. It's like a game I would never opt to get into now. So <laughs> much of it is like the jockeying for relevance game, mm-hmm. which is really, really hard and really different than radio. I mean, obviously, it has all these other opportunities like you can get so much more specialized and you can go as long as you want and. You can, you don't have to put something out every day, but it's just like a very different uh, mindset than, than radio. Where it's like, no, we're all jockeying for attention rather than being something, being like a public utility that you turn on like water, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: So you and I have talked between us um, about the changing podcast space. And the shows that are being produced right now, the shows that have been really big in the last couple of years and how it's pretty, you know, de rigueur to lead with your politics Mm -hmm. and make sure that people know that you're like fighting on the right side, maybe, you know, that that you're one of the good ones. (laughs) And to me, I have to say, I don't think that it's made podcasting better. (laughs) Um, I think that the sense that you were talking about of wandering in order to find where the story is and engaging your curiosity, um, you know, this unfolding narrative that you are creating out of a medium that really thrives on discovery and thrives on a surprise, you know, that keeps you in your driveway, Mm -hmm. um, I will say, I don't think that that surprise is or has ever been, hey, guess what? I'm actually really racist. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, like, like that's never the surprise we're talking about. It's always like the surprise is look at this complicated person whose story went in complicated directions and isn't that kind of interesting? Don't you relate to that as a complicated human being yourself? Yeah, Um. And, you know, shows that kind of lead with a little bit more of an activist push that are a little bit, um, you know, that really do want to make it clear, like I said, you know, what the politics are up front. Um, That can flatten a good narrative. That can make it more about purity than complexity. And for us, in particular, focusing on art and fashion, you know, boldness And courage to make something new is really important. And it's very hard to make something new and to be really curious if you're also worried that stepping out of line is going to damage your reputation. Um, And I was just kind of curious, like, like, do you feel like art, fashion, maybe even podcasting is a little threatened with when the sense of the unknown is removed? What are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, I just think it's so different if you're – I think one of the beautiful things about podcasting is the way, especially for journalism, that it allows real, like, journalists to take a stance and, like, have a thesis and prove Mm -hmm. it, you know? And I don't think it's necessarily a total buzzkill to come out with your politics right away. In some ways, I think it can be really interesting to be like, uh, you know, we're going to look at this, you know, this event through the lens of X Mm -hmm. and here's Y and then it becomes this – W-H-Y, here's why. Um, and I think then it can become a really interesting, compelling argument. But I think in the realm that we are working in, in the examination of objects and artifacts made by people who we do not personally know, mm-hmm. Like, you know, I reached out to Ralph Lauren for this story. He didn't want to be a part of it, which is, like, fair. Dude's in his 80s, like, living his best life, going to all of his houses. Like, he Mm -hmm. doesn't have to talk to me. Um, But I can't tell you what I think. Like, I can only present what I have found about Ralph Lauren. Mm -hmm. I I haven't talked to the man. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't interview Caravaggio. All we can say (laughs) is, like, here's what we've gathered. Here's what we know so far. Mm -hmm. And I think it's harder to come out with something political rather than interviewing like living people um, who have experienced an event or have been hurt by it or perpetuated it or, or something uh, you know we're, we're like just piecing something together yeah and so I think in that in that case to have a politics about something that we can't we cannot actually speak to directly is irresponsible but I think it, it really depends on like the kind of the kind of story. You're telling. Yeah. And so I feel like the wandering is, is necessitated in the in the covering of, of of people who you cannot you cannot know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's nicely put. I I really liked actually the way that you threaded this needle in the finale episode of Ivy because you you talk about nostalgia and it requires a kind of contemporary lens on the past that is not necessarily like you describe nostalgia as as it is which is you know kind of only remembering the good things yeah and that has not actively been the ethos of this moment <laughs> is to look back and just remember the good things um and i appreciate that you both put your finger on you know why that is a dangerous thing to do and yet why we yearn for it like why we do it anyway and that nostalgia you know softens a lot of edges and and vaseline's a lot of lenses and <laughs> that's well that <laughs> that's a very human impulse to do and i liked that it wasn't something that you necessarily apologized for you just explained And let people take their own takeaways from that. You know, oh, do I do that? Oh, that's interesting. Why am I so, you know, oh, I thought I liked this, but I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't, but oh, but I really do. You know, there's there's a permission there, I think, that is really, like, I'm grateful for that in your storytelling because it's not like, your work, and I I hope for this myself, it's not like you are any less inclusive or focusing on, you know, really interesting, diverse issues and voices that have been heard from and voices that haven't. And I feel like you fold that into your work, but you don't make it the central focus of your work. And I think that that's a really important piece of, of good historical storytelling, is to include as many voices as you can, but also not necessarily leading with any kind of political agenda, you know, it's like this is history um, as it is, you know, to me and to my politics. But this is, uh, you know, maybe a more objective look at how we got here and like the best and worst of humanity that brought us here.
1: I mean, well, first of all, thank you so much for the close listen. It's very fun to have like the lonely palette treatment on my <laughs> It's very cool to hear you like analyze it in your beautiful voice. I well, I don't know. I mean, I have to say I think a lot of it I have to credit my editor Kelly Prime with a lot of help with this. I mm. think it was not very. In um, talking about, I had such a hard time ending it. I really saved the ending until like the last minute, and there was this whole other direction I was gonna go with it. I was really perplexed for mm. like how to how to end this thing. I don't know. I, I I was like, how do I weave all these things together? And I was way over analyzing it. And Kelly, mm. my editor, was like, pare it down, pare it down, pare it down, pare it down. So it's funny. I don't think it's objective. Per se, and I don't think, you know, it's like, can there be such a thing as objectivity? But I do mm-hmm. just think I like, Kelly helped me pare it down just to say less. And it's so easy, especially, when, you know, we're in the business of talking to overanalyze <laughs> mm-hmm. things and really hit people over the head. And Kelly was like, just say it. Like, cut, 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 cut. She like cut all of my thoughts on like how I practice nostalgia and like what I think is dangerous
0: about it. I mean, that's the the truism. I mean, my dad used to say this. I don't know where he got the quote from, but um, that uh, simplicity before complexity Mm. is grotesque and simplicity after complexity Mm. is bliss. I've never heard that. And it's like you have to get like you have to have it all before you pare it back and pare it back. You know, I mean, ask picasso yeah, ask, yeah, ask yeah any you know artist who who significantly simplified their forms but only because they knew what they were pulling back it wasn't that they didn't yes, they couldn't yes. get to that place and i think that it takes an enormous amount of like i don't know like compassion for your audience that your goal is to write something that will land and make it as relatable as possible i think that that even though you're telling a very specific story about yourself and kind of your own evolution of like thinking that you weren't <laughs> preppy and then realizing that you actually were kind of preppy and thinking that you hated it and then realizing like what about it you embodied, that's not bad, you know, that's yeah. just complicated. Um I love the woman you interviewed who's like, it's about time yeah, you realized. Yeah. You were preppy. Uh, no, it's like ridiculous that I didn't <laughs> um, like
1: realize I was preppy, and it's interesting. It's like, what? How much of this is aesthetics? How much of this is lifestyle? And that was the whole other ending. I was gonna, that I was gonna take it on, just like talking about class and like the class divide in the, in the U.S. And then and 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 Kelly, my editor, again was like, this is too much. You're like saying too much, and it wasn't because it was like political that made it bad. She's just like, you're you're. Just say less. Just say less.
0: But it is in there. It's in there. And that's that's what I think is, when I say you threaded the needle, like, that's what I think is really, like, delicate yet solid <laughs> oh, about thank your you. show is that you you do get into issues of class. You do get into issues of race. Um, you know, you talk about how Brooks Brothers started making smaller suits for for trans men. You know, you bring all of that in and at the same time you're talking about your narrative journey through it can i just say this
1: is like the greatest gift this is like i was so (laughs) worried about this ending i really felt like nauseated for days and hearing this i'm like awesome this feels like getting your ears and your analysis and your listen feels like i won an award like thank you this is incredible (laughs) no this is like thank you so validating yeah
0: um Oh, and and you're looking at something like nostalgia and talking about your own relationship with it. Um, And I think that what that does, actually, is that it it doesn't alienate anybody because people will look at your journey. They'll think about the journey that they would be on. They they can pull on different elements of this that relate to them, you know, that same kind of specificity into universality that that reaches so many more people and I I think what bothers me about very overtly political storytelling is that it can't help but alienate a lot of people. And, you know, maybe you can say, Okay, I I don't care. Yeah. You know, I don't care if I'm alienating them. I'm I'm you know, I'm standing up for what really matters to me. I have my conviction. That's that's fine. And you can say, Okay, that's fine, but, you know, you're missing out on an opportunity to really reach out and touch more people. And I think that it's it's that bringing people together that is going to save us <laughs> politically. I think it is by reaching out. I don't think that it's by kind of closing off. Um, and that's my own personal thing. I, you know, I think that, like, I'm not an activist. I'm, I'm okay admitting that, um, but I do want to be a good journalist and I want to be a good storyteller and both of those things I think require trying to reach as many people as possible and and really not kind of cloistering your message you know behind I don't know behind kind of signals that you know well this is this is storytelling only for the people who I want to hear it. Well, I is that fair?
1: Totally. To but, but I also feel like you know part of the when we talk about leading with politics, you know, it's like personal, is political. I feel like it, identity has become so heavily politicized mm. that to introduce oneself at the beginning of of a story is an inherently political act to say mm. what your perspective is. And I have to say the only way I've been able to avoid it is because I've been doing this show for so long and there's a degree of familiarity. And I think that hosts that are new like, have to do that. I also think that I have a pretty, like, NPR-ish sounding voice where people don't, like, quite be like, what's her deal? So I feel like there are a lot of affordances that I had that, like, allowed me to not express my perspective until the very end, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is kind of a fun trick. I actually, I re-listened to S-Town before making this season because I wanted to steal their trick of putting... Do you remember how S-Town ends?
0: No, I only remember how I felt listening to it. How I don't did even you feel remember a lot of the story that the writing was so fucking good? I remember I was yeah. kind of blown away by it. I'm really blown away by it. At the
1: end at the ending, I was knocked over. And I remember listening to it the second time, I was also like, "God damn, that was so good." And they did this yeah. trick. They did this amazing trick where they put the thing that you'd think would be in the beginning at the end. And that's basically Mm. what I was trying to steal. They talk about John B. McLemore's origin story, like his birth story at the very, do you remember his his mother rubbed her belly against the earth and said, please God, send me a genius. And that's the ending. And you're just like, whoa, Whoa. beautiful. And so while, you know, I don't have an origin story on the magnitude of like John B. McLemore, I was like, let me, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to put the thing that you'd think would be at the beginning at the end You know, because every other story would be like, I didn't identify with preppy and here's my journey to like get there. Um, Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, it was less of a political move and more of a narrative trick Mm -hmm. that I think I was doing for the sake of like making things um, interesting. And I just think I have a lot of by having like a very white authoritative sounding voice (laughs) that people don't really question. I'm sort of this like ambiguous like NPR sounding person. Uh, that I can do that.
0: Mm. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: Don't you think? Yeah. I I Um, just think that, like, it's not an option for everyone.
0: I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, there's a lot that I, you know, I'm not a big fan of talking about, like, you know, all the things that I have left to learn. Yeah. And at the same time, I do really like the phrase, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. And you'd think that they would be the same, but they're not. And, <laughs> and I, I definitely came out of, you know, I graduated college in 2005. I, I you know, my, my university didn't even have an Asianist on wow. staff. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was just like, it was even as, as recently as 2005, there was no question that art history was just extraordinarily Eurocentric and so that was what shaped me and you know so so now when I start to you know when I start to step outside (laughs) you know that personal um, scaffolding around myself and start to look out into the world and I realize wow there's a lot that I was just never taught and so how can I teach myself and how do I trust that it's okay that I'm Telling this story because that was a real moment of paralysis that I was kind of told, like, yeah, not only have you not, you know, um, stepped outside of yourself enough, but that's also not your place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I had to kind of re, you know, learn to trust myself again and say, well, as as an art historian, I I think it can be my place as long as I'm, you know respecting again, not knowing what I don't know. And, you know, you're you're doing that dance with yourself constantly. But I just um I just appreciate that that when you're diving into historical stuff, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to tell a story. But I think being a, a good listener and a, you know, kind of a compassionate storyteller is as important as your own identity when totally. you're coming in, totally. I dare say even more, um, and that that is something that I think that that really good storytellers should should trust their ability to respect their material.
1: Totally. I well, I
0: feel like uh, using the example of this
1: story of the preppy story. I mean, it was unique in that I really did feel like I had a dog in this fight. It did feel like it was sort of my story to tell, because. Mm-hmm. So much of it was like a story about New York Jews and like, that's me. (laughs) And um, you know what I mean? And so it was very, it was a very lucky weaving where, you know, there were lots of identities and parts of the story that are not me, but I was this one part. That's the whole thing about Ivy. I feel like whoever you are, you could probably find a way in. It's like so all encompassing. The story could probably be told by like almost anyone, you know?
0: (laughs) And that actually, that comes through. Yeah. That comes through, actually. I I think that that actually puts your finger on on something that's really successful about your show is that all the perspectives that you bring together, you have a lot of people telling their own anecdotal experiences of what brought them into fashion. Yeah, and yeah, Ivy is this thing that that you know kind of weaves them all together, even though they all come from really different backgrounds. Totally, I think that like I love that. I love that. I feel like that is that is how to bring in identity. And turn it back into the the portrait painted on the things we love. You know, it's like people do all, they're like bonded by the love of this thing. And it just, it feels like this is, this is kind of our political moment done really beautifully.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. it. It honestly, I'm sure you feel this way as an independent. It's so affirming. It's so cool. Like in this way that feels existential. I don't know. I just spent so much of my life being told by editors like what to do, what not to do, how to fit mm-hmm. the identity of other shows that I've like worked on or hosted for other brands. And it's so cool that you can make something that's just following your own curiosity that you make yourself. Yeah. And people like it. You know that people are like yeah. game, that they really want to listen to you. It's the it's like an existentially huge it doesn't feel it feels like something bigger than recognition you know what i mean yeah it's cool to know that you can like row along in your little canoe
0: yeah well it's a really well-made canoe oh (laughs) (laughs) you know like i think that that trusting you know learning to trust your instincts you know that's that's the other thing about uh parenting that i think is the real game changer i think that's the game changer in life is when Mm. you can start to trust your own instincts that that you know you are able to make the thing that you want to see out in the world. And that's a very yes. long journey yes. to get there. Yes. Um I have not, unfortunately, had the experience of actually working for a lot of other people and working for editors. And it I'm incredibly like, you know, like when I get edited, I I need to learn the painful, excruciating way not to respond to like, but but it yeah. was you can't you know and I, I still I mean, do that. There I'm still are a lot like of but, bad but, but, editors out there. Yeah,
1: there are a lot of bad editors, but, but there are a lot of great ones. And I do feel yeah. like I'm 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 very familiar. My first response is like but, 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 and then I take like mm-hmm. an hour and I think about it and I'm like, "Okay, you're right." Like, you yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> I'm so, you know, be like a sad "Thanks. Thanks, dad. I'm sorry." <laughs> um yeah, I mean the experience of of being on another show, being on other shows was so informative. It was good. Yeah. To learn what other places do and how to fit what other people want, so I'm amazed that you like w- have been able to forge and craft your own voice without that background. I feel like I could not have done it without like severe heavy instruction, and it's only now that I'm sort of like figuring out what I want, so I'm amazed I'm amazed you oh. haven't had that It's so cool,
0: well, thank you. It was a lot of. Every time I did get, not necessarily edited, but, you know, graded in grad school and my writing had to be, I guess, I guess that was actually my, like, this was my rebellious streak where I was in grad school. I had to write in a very academic way. I would like sneak in little Easter eggs of, of like flair and it was really, hard to rein myself in so much because i always had like little pop culture like pew 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 like associations going on in my head and yet i was never allowed to write about it yeah and so when i finally got the opportunity i was like this is my voice motherfuckers you know like this is going to be what i think about art history and it had been percolating for a long time in response to academic writing Totally.
1: That's. Th- I feel like that's an equivalent experience of writing for another voice or writing for another show is writing for like academic you, and then letting your own voice break out of that. That was. That sounds really similar to my experience hmm. in an interesting way. But one okay. is more I'll about put that content, on my and one yeah.
0: <laughs> when I'm trying to work for other shows, but is that something you want to do? Um, I definitely want to produce episodes for other shows i want to learn other shows voices and i also you know want to be trusted for some of my own voice and what i bring to it and so definitely collaborating we should do it we should do it yeah i mean it oh wow yeah i love that avery Truffelman, thank you so much for hanging out with me in our respective closets.
1: Yeah, it's so perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your questions. It's so fun to talk to you. And
0: I mean it. Let's like let's be in touch about making something. Alright, you got it. It is such a pleasure to talk to you too. And not just to hear your great voice. Yeah. of London town
1: Cause she's a dedicated follower